Okay, Psalm 115. Yes, Greg. He's managing the microphone. Oh. For my, to make my prayers more effective, is it Luke George or George Luke? It's George Luke, isn't it? Ah, okay. Fourth time, it turns out, is not the charm. But, but Greg did, so it's okay. Oh, man. For $250,000, what's my name? <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, questions. Actual questions. Okay. Carrie. You couldn't have tagged that two minutes ago? We have another microphone if we could get someone to run the other mic. Oh, Dan Barth. We'll take the... Uh, Dan Barth's going to take... Dan, you take the south side of the room, and, and uh, Jake can handle the north side. Okay. Okay, so we talked about, in your second point, about the folly of trusting idols. Um, if we are recognizing that maybe, like, God is bringing up some of that in our own lives, and, our, like, the cure for that is to try to behold God more. Uh-huh. Do you have some, like, specifics or, like, application of, like, where could we start with that? That is a fantastic question. Um, that's, by the way, a prayer of the Psalms. Um, let, me, let me find it. Um, give me one second. That's why I got my little thing here. Uh, come on. Psalm 119. Turn over to Psalm 119. Um, verse 18. So one of the things we should be regularly, and, and if you've come here week after week, you probably notice frequently, I'd say the majority of the time in one of the pastoral prayers in the service, I'm praying this or something very much like this. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, um, nope, not 119.18. No, it is 119.18. So what am I looking at? Oh, I'm looking at 118. Sorry. Psalm 119, 118. Let me go back a page or two. Okay, 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So there's a clear recognition that I need God to, to open my eyes in that way. Um, and in the passage we looked at in 2 Corinthians, it's clearly a sovereign work of God that speaks light into the heart. But we can seek it, we can ask for it. So I, what I can do, here, I mean, honestly, it's kind of like Jacob wrestling with the angel, right? So Jacob wrestles with the angel, he says, I'm not letting go of you until you give me a blessing. And... I would encourage you, and when I'm at, when I'm being faithful, when I go to God's word, I'm I'm not putting this book down till I get a blessing, till I see some glory, when I see something that makes my heart get thrilled, when I see, I see something that encourages my faith, when I see something that's worth looking at. Um, 
John Piper, if any of you've read John Piper, you'll realize I'm doing very little but aping a lot of the notes he hits, and I think he hits them uniquely for our generation. Nobody I know hits these notes. He describes the Bible like a big floor-to-ceiling glass window overlooking a vista of the Alps. And you pull it back, and when you see true beauty and glory, you don't Worship comes out of your mouth. You don't think, I should respond in awe and wonder. You just go, whoa. You know what I mean? That's just the way we're wired. And so if we're reading the Bible and we're not going, whoa, to something about who God is or what he's done or what he's promised, it's not because the Bible got dusty. It's because our eyes, that veil, started to slip back over again. Um, And so we need to ask God to remove it. The second thing we can do is get rid of distractions. Go Go to 1 Peter. Uh, chapter, it's either the end of one or the beginning of two. I'm guessing it's the beginning of two. I could be wrong. First Peter, um, I think I'm right, but I could not. Right. Yeah, it's right at the beginning of two. There it is. Um, and so in Scripture, when you see put off, put on, there's the clear implication these things are at odds with one another. So put away all wrath and clamor, rather speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is going to be stopped by wrath and clamor and vice versa. You, you can't do both, the implication is. They're, they're exclusive. And so the put on in 1 Peter 2.2 2 is like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Long for it, which again presupposes, now we're switching metaphors to tasting, something tasty, something delectable, something, um, you know, you, when you've eaten or drank something you really enjoy and you want it, you know. Um, that's the idea here, but it's similar to seeing glory, yearning for longing for something. But look at verse 1, what it tells us to put away. Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What's the implication? That justice treats spoil a child's appetite, so these things may spoil a newborn's appetite for the milk. Um, Another thing you could do in a similar vein would be getting rid of lesser glories, um, if you've been watching, you know, every single, if you've been rewatching all of the Marvel Universe movies, and I'm, personally, I've seen most of them, I have nothing against that, but they're all about spectacle and Marvel, and there's something that can be good about that, being reminded, I mean, the God who made, okay, so like, you, you watch one of those movies, those big galactic showdowns and stuff, I, mean, I think this is just straight Piper, so I'll, I'll just credit Piper rather than get liable or, or, or plagiarism suits, but he's, he was talking about, he used to, for his birthday, three years in a row, he went and saw the Lord of the Rings movies. It's like the only movie all year you'd see. And you see these big, big, awesome showdowns. And he's like, I like to remember that this awesome scene that makes everyone in the theater go, whoa, you know, um, was made by a effects company on a small rock orbiting the sun that God flung into existence. Like, that's how great my God is. Like, okay, you want to go watch an awesome movie like that? That's fantastic. Do all things to the glory of God. The danger, however, is we keep putting these big flashy neon signs in front of our eyes, and like, um, like the heat that comes off the road when you're driving, it can distort what's behind it. And if all you've got is things, and we live with the uh, digital age and social media, ping, ping, and now this, I mean, just it's really hard to get alone and... You know, focus on anything for three minutes without a new Twitter notification or a new text or a new email or whatever. 
then those lesser lights can distract us and we can just see their glory and we can just see their glory and just be enthralled by their glory. So another way, if, if you're finding, if you're saying, and this happens to me regularly, my, my, the Christian life is tending your heart. If you think that as a pastor, that means every day I just love God's word, you're wrong. I have to tend my heart. And there are seasons when I'm hungering for it. There are seasons where I've eaten too many, you know, I've eaten, I've, I've, I'm not hungering for this glory. And I read it and it's kind of like, oh, okay. And that's a good sign to me, like, okay, I need, I need to get rid of things that are distracting me. I need to get rid of lesser lights. And I need to, um, and I need to pray for God more to open my eyes. I need to, like Jacob wrestling the angel, okay, I know there's glory here. I know there's wonderful truth here. I know that there is such truth that David writes Psalm 119, which is 13 minutes of nonstop praise for God's word. I know that's true. I'm just not seeing it. So God changed my eyes, my heart, my mind, until I see that as well. Another thing you can do is you can, you can put sermons on. One of the things that's great about preaching or teaching, part of what I'm trying to do and what preaching is supposed to be is to put on display, help someone see what's in the text. I'm not trying to put things in the text that aren't there. I'm trying to slow down and say, okay, do you see what they're saying? Do you see how they're saying? Like, even this morning, they're saying, not to us but your name be glory, for... Your steadfast love. Okay, what's the logic of that? So let me work you through the logic. What's going on there? So hopefully as you see what's in the text, not what I put there, and I'm helping you see it, you go, yeah, that is there. Whoa, that's cool. You know, and you, you respond with something. Um, so we can help each other in this. It's not something you have to do all by yourself. Christ gave his church teachers and preachers um, to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You go in the Old Testament, they'd read the law, and then the Levites would come and help the people, give them an understanding of the meaning of the word. So we all need people to help us read the Bible. Um, and God's gifted us with those people. So, so that, that would be a short list of things, would be clearing your schedule of lesser competing glories, praying and asking God to help you see glory, um, maybe dealing with sin in your life. A friend of mine will describe the Christian life a friend of mine describes Christian life this way. The Holy Spirit will show you something in your life or something that he wants you to change or do. And there's a sense in which until you do that, don't expect him to show you some new thing. You know? um, and uh, maybe the reason why you're, you know, you're, and I wrestle this. I'm trying to crack Psalm 115. I'm like, God, help me crack Psalm 115. Help me understand. And God's saying, in effect, why don't you deal with the issue of loving your wife that I showed you yesterday before we move on to what Psalm 115 is saying? I mean, I'm not saying God says that, but in effect, that's what's going on. So that could be in play, too, that um, God's already shown you something he wants you to do. And so he's not planning on showing you 15 new things until you start doing the thing he showed you. Uh, these are off-the-cuff application things, but the first would just be recognize you need it. Don't fake it. It is good to get up and read your Bible anyway. But reading it one way, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, there is something encouraging here, and I'm, I'm going to see it. Lord, help me see it. It's different than, regardless of whether or not I saw anything, I'm a good Christian because I did my quiet time this morning. I wonder how many people at Martin still did their quiet time this morning. I'd better Instagram about it. Virtue signal. You know, um, you got to do it subtly, too. But I got so much out of my quiet time this morning. God is so good. You know, yes, Carol. I'm, um, I'm going to say this, I guess, because I sent you an email about it. And Jeremy asked me if I was thinking about teaching another class. So I 
I sent him, uh, I said, well, let me, let me pray about that. Um, and uh, so um, after Christmas, I, I threw out the idea of teaching a class on the devotional life in the quiet time. Mm. And uh, I think you said that was a good idea. I did. Yeah, so that's coming up. But I'm, I'm thinking one thing I, that so helps. Carrie, there's a class for you coming up. <laughs> So, Carol, you want to expect one person, at least, to yeah. be in your class. Yeah, Carrie comes to my class, so she's there. Um, but I'm thinking, it, it is so easy for me to get distracted. Oh, I'm the most, I'm, i got to be ADHD, you know, just ask what? my wife. But one thing that helps me a lot is I keep, a, I keep a prayer book, but I always start out by writing down part of the scripture that I've just read before I even start praying. I get so much more out of a short passage of scripture in my quiet time if I write the passage down. Mm. And it's just amazing, you know, because I'll read it in my, on, on the third word, my mind's already drifted off somewhere else, but not when I'm writing it down. So, well, And memorization, the Bible clearly assumes and instructs us to memorize it, mm-hmm. which again, the beauty of that, Carrie, is if you've memorized a verse or two or three, you can carry that with you in your head long after your quiet time is done. Um, and you can be, maybe three hours later, something clicks, like, oh, wow, that's cool. You know, um, so, so yeah. Any other questions along those lines? Great question, Carrie. Great question. What else? Other lines of questioning. Oh, Lucas. No, no, it's, it's coming. It's coming. I said your name so the mic guy would know. Right. So, I remember some other verses about, in the Bible, where it talks about in the book of James. In the book of James, it talks about repentance to Christ. It means how God created those people who has a more details in a message from three scriptures to James and Samuel. And it was the birth of Jesus was being given to the woman was in a church being drunk. That's what it meant in First Samuel 1. So yeah, Hannah was at the temple and Eli thought she was drunk. She wasn't drunk, but she was so pouring her heart out in prayer that Eli, yeah, no, absolutely. That is the, uh, the conditions for the birth, uh, well, actually for the uh, pregnancy of Hannah. She asks Eli eventually to pray for her, and he does, and she conceives. Absolutely, First Samuel chapter 1. What else do we have? So, did you, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, with, uh, you talked about how... Um, God's glory is revealed in, in saving us. And uh, someone, I think uh, we were in small group a few weeks ago, and someone brought up uh, how um, like we're saved to be a people that are zealous for good works. When you're thinking about, like, the, I guess, could you expand on, like, how the, the, the God's saving, God saving us and, like, whatever normal things, like, normal, quote-unquote, like, doing, going to a Marvel movie and watching it, or... Like, you know, eating a burger, like all those things. Like, how do you how do you do them in a way that actually points to that? 
Well, I, I think we do it authentically. I mean, my kids, I let them see a Star Wars movie. Guess what they do when they're free? They run around with a stick that they pretend to be a lightsaber, and they pretend, they imitate this glorious thing they saw. They want to they wanna be it. They want to do it, right? Um, and we, we, all of us do that. We see glory, and, and it affects and impacts us. So ideally, our obedience, uh, was it Thomas Kempis, the pursuit of imitation of Christ? We're doing it because we want to. The same way the kid you know, plays air guitar, pretending he's his favorite rock star. We, we're hardwired for this. We want to emulate. We want to. Uh, if, if you see something that's attractive and wonderful and glorious, and there's any way you could share in that, that you could put on some of that, you could do some of that, wouldn't that be what would just be most pleasing to you? Which is part of the reason why the notion of seeing Christ as glorious and yet loving your sin more is impossible. Like, sure, we'll always struggle with sin, but the cure for sin ultimately has got to be a greater delight, a greater glory, and a greater savior. Um, it's, it's got to be. I mean, fear, self-discipline, they can help us in for 10 seconds, maybe not to click a mouse button. Uh, but for the long-term Christian life, it's got to be the desire to please God, the desire to be more and more like Christ. Um, so when that's how we're obeying, it most pleases God. Um, I would say there's probably three motivations for obedience or three ways to approach this. I'm doing nothing but ripping off Piper this morning. Um, uh, The highest would simply be in delight. I am so thrilled with my Savior. He's so wonderful. He's so pleasing to me. I just want to make him happy in whatever way I can be like him. Jesus is compassionate. I want to be compassionate. Jesus, I love his mercy. I want to be merciful. Like that, that would be, and I think in heaven, that will be our motivation. Uh, and that should be our highest ideal, is to obey for those reasons. Um, so Piper's illustration I'm ripping off is there's three ways, he says, you can glorify a fountain. You can drink deeply and delight in the fountain. So you can just be there, guzzle, you can just drink. The second, and we see this also in Scripture, is you can thirst for a fountain. I think this can be where my heart right now is not um, thrilled with Christ, and I long for prayer time, I long to hear a sermon, I long for some time where I can go and, and go back up and drink from that fountain. Um, so, so David in Psalm 42, um, like the deer thirsts for springs of water, so my soul thirsts for you, when will I appear before God? What you get now is, and I think in that action we can pursue and obey, and I don't delight in it now, but I trust and hope soon I will, and in the meantime, I'm believing I'm, let's put it practically, I am serving my wife right now doing dishes, even though I don't delight to do it because Christ serves us. I mean, that'd be the best reason. Like, man, Jesus, as a husband, serves his bride. Let me in some small way serve my bride. Like, that'd be the best reason to go do the dishes. Um, but I can do the dishes even though I'm not feeling that, thinking I trust and believe that in short order, when I get some prayer time, sometime, I will feel that way, that that is true. And so I'll act as though it's true now. The third way, Piper says, you can glorify a fountain is by longing, and no, by repenting or by mourning your lack of thirst for it. Um, I ought to delight in this thing. I ought to thirst for this thing, and I don't. You're still, his point being, treating it as valuable. It's a real shame that I don't even long for this thing that I should long for. 
And I think we can, we can act that way. I, I feel dead in my heart right now. I, I can't even say I have much longing to go fan that flame. And you recognize that's a bad place to be. And you recognize that's not a healthy place to be. And in contrition and humility, nevertheless, I will, we need to work on that. Nevertheless, I will try to follow him. I think all three of those glorify God because all three of them are treating him as valuable. All three of those are treating him as worthy of something. In no case are you doing your duty and scoring points. In no case are you getting chips to spend with God later to cash in for that job you wanted or to cash in for his answered prayers. If you're putting him in your debt. In all three of those, you're coming as a someone who benefits from God. You're either benefiting here and now because you're drinking and you're delighting. You're, you're, I'm soon going to benefit. I'm soon going to be drinking and delighting. Or I ought to be thirsty and I'm not. So I think all three of those are valid and can work. Um, the danger would be doing it self-righteously or in a sort of tit-for-tat, racking up a score type of way. Um, so it, it's, it's a dangerous thing to get into because we can just make ourselves do our devotions legalistically, mechanically, and we start keeping track of score. Well, after all, God, I got up every day this week and read my Bible, so I'm really a little disappointed that you didn't answer that prayer the way I wanted you to. You know, that, that's not any three of those ways. <laughs> you know, that's coming to someone like you're, you're buying a service, and so I'll do the thing you want, and then I'll have earned enough of a paycheck that I can cash some of it in for this prayer, please. You know, um, please make the cancer go away. Um, I think I've prayed enough. And it, we wouldn't be that, um, that mercenary to say that, but I think we might be tempted to think that. So is that going where you're going, or have I just, okay, okay. George Luke. I had to think that one through for a second. Thanks, Greg. Greg's got me all... We're sticking with that story, Naomi. We're sticking with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, this this is probably a whole another topic, but you mentioned Exodus uh, seven this morning, and as I continue to read, and you read it. Too, oh, there he is. Oh, sorry. Where's that? Voice? Okay, it's Kevin. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, I wondered if you could. Uh, Shortly expound upon the last part of that verse um, that says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Mm, sure. Are you talking about Exodus 34? 34, 7. Seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just what, that, what that's referring to and what it looks like. Sure. Um, let's look at it first. Uh, Exodus 34, let's read 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is admittedly tough. I got some idea. I'm not totally punting. I I will say I'm going to give a partial answer now, and I can come back with a fuller one. Well, we know what it doesn't mean. Let's take, keep our finger here and go to Ezekiel 18, I believe, to see what it doesn't mean. Uh, and then I'll try to tell you what I think it does mean. 
So Ezekiel, I want to say 18. I really hope I'm right here. Yes! <laughs> All right, it's two for two. It was the beginning of 1 Peter 2, and this is Ezekiel 18. Oh, man, I'm keeping score. I'm getting chips. Okay. Um, Ezekiel 18. The word of the, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So normally you eat sour grapes, and whose teeth get set on edge? Yours. Um, and the proverb that's going around is, the fathers ate sour grapes, and our teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And then he goes on to illustrate that point. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat on the mountaintops or lift up his eyes to the idols of his neighbor, the house of Israel, nor does he defile his neighbor's wife, nor approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully and righteously, he shall Surely live, declares the Lord God. If he's a father's son, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats up on the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, opposes the poor and the needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to idols, commits abominations, lends it interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now, suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done, and he sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idol or the house of Israel. The idols of the house of Israel does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So we got three generations, and in no instance does either the righteousness or the wickedness of the father or son affect the judgment on the other. A wicked father does not condemn a righteous son, and a righteous son does not atone for a wicked father, right? So in no sense does visiting the iniquity on the children mean people are going to hell as a punishment for what their parents did. The soul that sins dies. Now, there is a very real sense in which on earth the children are punished for the sins of the parents all the time. Every time we go to war, we bomb a nation. There are German children who suffered because they're part of corporate solidarity, because they're part of that nation. And so when we're bombing, and there are British children in London, the, the armies are trying to attack each other, but because we're attacking Germany, and Germany's attacking us, there are people simply by virtue of being connected with that people who are going to suffer. So God tells Israel to go wipe out the Amalekites. There absolutely had to be Amalekite children who got wiped out. Their parents sinned. Their parents were the wicked ones. Their parents are the ones who, who did the wicked things. And so there can be an absolute sense on earth and in time and space where, I'm sorry, your parents were really, really, really wicked people. And so the Lord's blotting out this nation. 
There's also a secondary sense in which the children learn the sins of the parents. It's not for nothing that most of the Amalekite kids grow up Baal worshipers, right? So, and we know that more often than not, children growing up in Christian homes, more like, where do most Christians come from? I think still the majority is to be from Christian homes. So, the, the wickedness of parents, and we know also children learn from their parents, either imitating or then doing the polar opposite. But the effect of the parents on the kids is huge. So it does not mean that God is holding any child eternally guilty of anything his parent did or did not do. I do think there are many ways we could look at in time and in space in this world where what the parents did has a huge effect on the kids. Both just simply... You're an Amalekite kid, we're sorry. <laughs> like, you're going to stand or fall before God when you die based on your own guilt, your own sin, and you may go to heaven if you've trusted in the Savior. You still may get knocked down. You know what I mean? So, um, Jonathan gets killed. He's part of the household of Saul. And when they battle the Philistines, even though Jonathan's faithful and he loves David, uh, Jonathan dies as a result of his father's wickedness, right? He's going to be in heaven, but the sins of his father have visited upon him in this life. Some, something like that. I could, I'd have to dig more to go further, but it certainly doesn't mean anyone's eternal standing and judgment has anything to do with anything other than the, what they did in this life and them alone. Ezekiel is explicitly clear. So um, that, that would be, that make that good enough for now? Okay, cool. Okay, we've got, oh, Okay, Um, Exodus 33, 23, um, when it's talking about God showing Moses his backside, but not his face, Mm -hmm. because no man can see his face and live. Once I heard someone say when he did that, Moses saw like the history of God in creation and man, and that's how he was able to write the Pentateuch. That's... Possible, but I don't see much from the text suggesting it. Yeah, I don't either. So I don't, I'd, I'd have to hear why they think that's the case, but I don't see anything in this chapter to suggest it. I'm not saying it couldn't have happened, but what I, what I see is God declaring who he is. Mm-hmm. So the first declaration, and these are, these are huge things. I mean, this is Paul's big point in Romans 9. The first time, okay, so let's, let's just go back. The first thing we learn about God, if you just think of like God revealing who he is, is the evidence of himself in creation. Romans 1 tells us that any person, Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, anybody, could see there's a wise, powerful, artistic God. Okay, that's the first thing we know about God. Then, we also know from conscience, and this God cares about right and wrong. So we know all this. Then, God makes a covenant with Abraham. This is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping Blessing God. That's the next. I mean, because we we just assume, of course, you know, we can write the attributes of God. Like Abraham has heard some stories, probably pretty good, accurate stories, because oral tradition is huge back then. But Abraham has heard oral reports, and God shows up and speaks to him, and he makes a covenant with him, and he and that's what he learned. And he learns God's faithful, and he learns God's merciful, and he intercedes at Sodom and Gomorrah, and he learns God is reasonable, right? But how much more can you say the patriarchs know about God? They could learn some stuff through what he does. So when God shows up at the burning bush to Moses and he says, I am that I am, that's huge. What do you say? I'm self-existent. I'm always being. And then this is the next big who are you? 
in the next big thing. I have mercy, and I have mercy. That's right there in uh, verse um, 19 of 33. I'll be gracious in whom I'm gracious, and I'll show mercy in whom I show mercy. Oh, yeah, I'm a savior, but you don't twist my arm into saving anybody. I mercy whom I mercy. And Paul, like, I'm going to write three chapters in Romans on that point. You know, that's Paul's going to. And part of his point is this wasn't some late to the game addition about who God is. This is like ground floor. You start with he's a creator and he's righteous and he makes covenants and he's self-existent and he mercies whom he mercies. I mean, this is this would be at the very bottom of the list of the very beginning of the list of things we learn about God. And so as Paul's arguing that in Romans 9, he's basically saying, this, this was one of the first things God told us about himself. This, this, this is one of the first things. God, and he ties it to his glory. What, part of my glory, God says, is my utter freedom. And we said earlier, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Well, part of what doing whatever he pleases, I mercy my mercy. You don't make me do things. You don't twist my arm. You don't. I mean, I think in part that's even explaining his just pardoning of Israel. So Moses intercedes for them. And I think part of this is a corrective. Don't think for a second, Moses, you made me do something. Oh, no, he said the magic words. He performed the ritual. I'm powerless to resist. I must now pardon them. No, I mercy my mercy. You feel free to intercede for them, Moses. Feel free to plead on their behalf. I will do as seems good to me, says God. That, that's, I think, part of what even is going on there. So right off the top, that's that. So I want to really look at where the text goes. What's God's glory? God's glory is his freedom to save whom he wills. What's God's glory? The next bit in chapter 34, 6, and 7 is his salvation and his judgment. That's God's glory. Um, the, the verse six focusing and, and half a seven focusing on his saving activity, which is what he said to abound in. So the, the Puritans would say judgment is the unusual activity of God. Um, or the, what was, that's not even unusual. The, what's the word? It's, uh, what? Peculiar. Yes. No, no, I think, I think it's peculiar. His, what they're saying is he isn't abundant in wrath. He's abundant. He's overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, so the peculiar work of God is his wrath and judgment. The, the, the normal activity of God is, is salvation, grace, and forgiveness. So, but, but put those two together, because right? what's the end of the book of Revelation where God is glorified? Great judgment. So that's absolutely part of his glory. And again, we don't want to divorce these or pit these against each other, because if you just tell people, why is God glorious? Because he's a savior, you know, the rankest pagans going to say, that's great. It's, it's the two together, which is, I think, is part of the glory. Even if you read six and seven, there's no explanation how these things fit together. God, show me your glory. Here's my glory. I forgive people, and I don't let guilty people go free. How does that one work? Well, it's going to take a cross to make that clear, that God doesn't let guilty people go free, and he forgives people. But... Okay, but I think there's meant to be a little cognitive dissonance there. Like, what's your glory? I, I mean, he just pours it on. I forgive, and I generation after generation, and I by no means pardon the guilty. But I thought you just said you forgive. I do, and I don't pardon the guilty. I mean, it's like, well, what is it? And he's going to teach us through the rest of Scripture what it is. The sacrificial system is going to start with that, um, and it's going to culminate on a cross where we see every sin's paid for. Every sin is punished. No sin gets swept under the rug, and God is just and justifier, right? Did I go too far afield, or was that? 
Okay. I have to say, I see plenty of glory there to yes. not have to add. Maybe he was doing some others. Maybe he was. The text points me to see what I, the directions I get from this text is I should be looking at seeing the glory of God in these things the text pointing me to. And as I look there and start to unpack it, there's plenty of glory there. So I'm not saying like, surely there's got to be some more glory here. Then I'm, I'm, I'm full up just on that. So I'd, I'd want to hear the person explain why they thought that. Maybe there's other passages that suggest that. But just on these passages alone, I don't see it. But Okay, and another thing was um, the veil, like the veil being over unbelievers. And, um, you know, the veil that was in the temple... Um, that was torn from top to bottom. And also Hebrews 10.20, um, sorry, I should have had it, it, says the veil is Christ's flesh. I think you may be mixing metaphors. Am I? Well, they all speak of veil, but in one instance, it's a real physical veil, the veil of the temple. And in Exodus, it's a real physical veil on Moses' face. But that's even taking place even while there's, a, there's two separate physical veils simultaneously. There's a veil, there's a wall in the tent of meeting, and there's a veil on right. Moses' face. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul makes a metaphorical veil as over the, the, the blinded eyes of his countrymen. Um, I think when it talks about the veil being Christ's flesh, it's talking about the veil in the temple. When he's talking about the veil that's blinding his countrymen, he's comparing it to the veil Moses wore, two different veils. There's a veil Moses wore. There's a veil that separates the ark and God's glory from the rest of the world. And I think even though they're both veils, the two different passages are speaking of two different things by speaking of veils, and I wouldn't want to blend them together. Otherwise, yeah, you're going to end up with the veil is Christ. So Christ's body is blinding unbelievers from seeing. No. Uh, that is, okay. So, no, it's yeah, ju- well, just like even in, in First Corinthians, even in First Corinthians, two different times the metaphor of uh, our body being the church, the church, our bodies being the temple, are used totally differently. In First Corinthians 3, you all, the local church, is a temple being built up to God. And in First Corinthians 6, it's your body. Well, which one is it? Is it my body or is it the body? Well, they're two different metaphors, both metaphors utilizing a picture of a temple, but you wouldn't want to bleed the two together because in the one he talks about people building on the temple, or he's talking about church leadership, pastors and preachers, and if you build in a worthy way, it's tested by fire. And he's talking about Apollos, really, who's finishing or, compl- or working on the work he started. He laid a foundation as a skilled master craftsman, and Apollos is building, and each one's work is tested. I mean, there's a whole metaphor there about building this temple, which is the church, in 1 Corinthians 6, it's like, would you join God's temple with a prostitute? Well, you, you, if you try to mix those two metaphors and synthesize them together, it's going to get weird real fast. They're two separate metaphors, both utilizing the picture of a temple. And so just because a metaphor utilizes the same picture, the same, the same metaphorical picture, doesn't mean we should just swap them over. So that, that's a short okay, answer. Thank okay, thank you. Sorry, sorry. Don. The mic's not on. Sorry. You are? Oh, time. Okay. Thank you all, everybody. I can stick around for a few minutes if you've got a question or two. That's cool. Thanks.